Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a podcast host who really is concerned about your understanding of science, especially that of biotechnology. It's around us all the time and only going to become more prevalent in new therapies and in new agricultural applications. Today is a really special podcast. This is an amazing guest that we have that takes us back to the a time when the tenor towards genetic engineering was very different. Back around the turn of the millennium, I guess it's the turn of the century too, um, it was a little bit different feel before the internet really took over the defamation of scientists and their career assassination. And um, those opposed to technology took on other means to solve their problems, uh, at least or to uh, agitate. And we'll talk about that today in an event from 2001. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. I'm speaking with Dr. Toby Bradshaw. Uh, he's a professor emeritus in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. And thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is really um, an interesting point in history. And I remember when this happened and, you know, it kind of kind of fell into the background a little bit, but let's set the stage. If we go back to 2001, what kind of work were you doing in Merrill Hall at the University of Washington? Since the mid-1990s, I have been working on the genetics of adaptation and growth in hybrid poplars. They're fast-growing trees that are used um, all around the world, but uh, heavily in the Pacific Northwest uh, to produce paper products primarily. So I was involved with um, the early molecular genetics research, including um, genome mapping and um, ultimately identifying traits that were responsible for faster growth, which I had a basic interest in, but which, of course, the timber companies had a commercial interest in. And were you working with genetic engineering or were you really just dealing with hybrids? Myself, I was only producing hybrid poplars through traditional cross-pollination methods that have been used for centuries um, in, in poplars around the world. I was also collaborating with Steve Strauss at Oregon State University on some preliminary work to genetically engineer trees um, for different growth form to produce more wood in a smaller um, land area, but I myself um, had never and still have never uh, genetically engineered a tree. And really the facility that you were working at, it isn't on the campus, right? It's, it's the Center for Urban Horticulture. And, and what are the kinds of things that were being done there? Well, it is technically on the UW campus. It's at the very periphery, separated from the main campus by the 
Union Bay natural area, a place where um, I enjoyed bird watching every day on my walk to work. So that was uh, a nice interlude for me um, every day. But the other kinds of work that were going on at the Center for Urban Horticulture included uh, restoration ecology, primarily for wetland restoration, um, understanding uh, plant succession after the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. There was conservation work for rare plants going on. So rare plants in Washington were being propagated for reintroduction uh, into the wild. And that was a, a particular focus of my colleague, um, Sarah Reichard, who you will hear more about later. And uh, the graduate students and undergrads who were doing their own research there worked on a wide range of topics, including, for example, um, how to have urban gardens produce more food for people who otherwise might not be able to afford uh, fresh vegetables. So it was a, a typical um, horticulture center, I think, at most universities where there was a mix of basic research, applied research, and outreach up to the public in the form of extension. And so it doesn't sound like this was the, you know, the uh, the center of the universe of Monsanto or something. I mean, this sounds like a really practical, extension-oriented center that had significant roles in community and 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 even just in the regional uh, agriculture. It's, that's is that more what it was about? Yes, I would say so. I mean, the University of Washington is not a land grant university. It's not an agricultural school, and the focus at the UW has always been uh, basic research and the Center for Urban Horticulture included in its mission some applied research and quite a bit of, of extension and outreach uh, to the public. So in that way, it was different from much of the rest of campus um, in its mission, but yeah, by no means uh, is the University of Washington um, any kind of center for uh, plant biotechnology. No, it, it, it wasn't then and it isn't now. Yeah, it's just a lot of good basic biology, you know, basic science and a lot of really good plant people there. But it's um, can you give me a little bit of the sense outside the university of like 2000 and zero, 2001? What was the environment like towards genetic engineering in your perspective and in your area you know, of the country? You know, what was really happening then in that environment? It was an interesting time. The the first genetically engineered crops that were planted on a wide scale had only been in, in production for less than a decade. So it was a relatively new technology on, in the commercial sector. Of course, even though scientists and people who keep up with science sort of familiar with the progress of genetic engineering, how it was eventually applied in agriculture, I think it caught a lot of the general public by surprise. And um, as everyone who's familiar with plant biotechnology knows, that can sometimes lead to misunderstandings and, and worse. Um, it, the, the first inkling that I had that anyone might be opposed to the kinds of research that I was doing was just a couple of years before in 1999 when Seattle hosted the World Trade Organization meetings. And I had some of my poplars that were uh, growing in pots out in the back 40 behind the Center for Urban Horticulture um, cut down by uh, vandals during those WTO protests. I mean, as often happens in these kinds of things, uh, my, my, the damage done to my plants was fairly minimal because these are poplars, you cut them off, they just regrow. We, that's how we actually propagate them through cutting. So it's, it, it had zero effect on me. But at the same time they went through 
and cut down all of the alder seedlings that a colleague of mine was growing for revegetating stream sides and the alders don't re-sprout after being cut back. So um, again, it was one of these ready, fire, aim moments for an activist who really didn't understand even the species of trees that they were looking at. I mean, it did a lot more damage to someone else's research than to mine. I mean, my research was essentially unaffected by the WTO protest. So I did, I did know that there was opposition out there to what I was doing. And of course, I was in um, communication with lots of other people working in plant biotechnology and in tree biotechnology specifically. And, and we had um, all experienced or knew someone who had experienced some kind of vandalism of their work. But, but it was, I, I would term it kind of minor uh, vandalism as opposed to what happened um, to two, in 2001. So take me to that day. Um, what exactly happened in the early morning of May 21st, 2001? I remember that day very well. I got a call about 6.30 in the morning from my colleague, Sarah Reichard, who was at the center. She was the first one to arrive that morning. And of course, the building was engulfed in flames. And by the time I got there an hour or so later, it had been completely destroyed. The fire department did an incredible job of trying to suppress the fire, uh, but it's a wooden building. It was meant to be sort of aesthetically pleasing and harmonious with the local environment. So it had an entirely wooden um, structure and therefore very susceptible uh, to fire damage. Uh, and the building was uh, unrecognizable. I mean, it had literally been burned um, to the ground and, and so many people's work um, was lost and so many of the features of the building, such as the public library of horticulture that existed there had been, had been damaged. It was really a horrific sight. Um, I have to say that I knew right away that um, it was arson and right away that I was the target of it, even though I'd never been specifically threatened in the past, um, simply because it was my window that was broken out. And if you look from the outside of the building, it was clearly my office um, where the fire had been set. And did anybody state any reason why you were targeted? There was a communique, which was the modus operandi for the Earth Liberation Front, who took credit for this um, act. The, there was a communique that followed two or three days after the fire that explained that the reason that I had been targeted for this firebombing was that I was, and I believe this is a direct quote, I'm unleashing mutant genes into the environment. So um, there was a quick claim of, of responsibility uh, for the act by the Earth Liberation Front, and that set in motion the events of the next decade or so when the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office did their best to find and prosecute the people who were responsible for firebombing the Center for Urban Horticulture. And what about Earth Liberation Front? Do you know anything else about that organization, or are there other cases of arson or threats to people, you know, personally that, that you know about? Well, I mean, I knew of the Earth Liberation Front because they had been involved in several actions uh, prior to 2001 when my office was firebombed. Uh, the one that's most relevant to your audience, I think, is the firebombing of Catherine Ives's office at Michigan State University. Catherine was working on um, genetically engineering 
subsistence crops for sub-Saharan African farmers. And I think the claim that the Earth Liberation Front made was that she was supported by Monsanto, when in fact, uh, all the money that she'd ever gotten from Monsanto was a $2,000 grant to send five African students to a scientific conference. So it's again one of these horribly, horribly misguided attacks that, um, that hurts people who can least afford to be hurt. They were just a collateral damage, I think, in the eyes of the Earth Liberation Front. It was a very unfocused and very unscientifically literate um, organization, um, and maybe that's why it's sort of faded from view now. So what exactly happened? What caused the fire? I seem to remember reading about some sort of incendiary device or a timed bomb or something. Oh, yes. So it's always disconcerting to look on a website and find your name next to instructions on how to build a firebomb, but that's exactly what I could find on the web in 2001, right after the fire that, that torched my lab in the entire building that I worked in. So this was a firebomb uh, that was the type of firebomb that was used in many other uh, Earth Liberation Front attacks, the attack um, on the ski resort in Vail, Colorado, burning of uh, various forestry facilities, primarily in Oregon, for example. So it's essentially a bucket of gasoline or gasoline diesel fuel mix that's ignited by either a toy rocket motor or a book of matches and triggered by a timer. Um, it's uh, you know, not a very complicated device, but certainly more sophisticated than just sloshing some gas on the floor and throwing in a match. I mean, it was a, a timed incendiary device, and the term that was used, as I later found out when one of the perpetrators came to trial, um, that is considered by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives to be a destructive device, um, and that came to carry quite a long sentence if someone's convicted of creating or using such a destructive device. Well, were you um, in the habit of being an early bird to work? And do you feel like you were personally targeted? I am in the habit. I, I, am, an, I am an early riser and I do get to work early. Uh, my work was targeted. I don't feel, and I still don't feel that I was in any personal danger. In other words, I don't think that there was any intent um, to physically harm me. But as the fire department noted, you know, once you set a fire, that's out of your control. So there's no way that they could have known whether there was a you know, grad student pulling an all-nighter in there or a janitor who came in early to work. I mean, it's really based on the, the amount of damage and the rapidity of the fire's spread. Um, it's a wonder that no one was hurt or killed. But in fact, no one was. And as far as I know, no one ever has been killed by an Earth Liberation Front attack. And no, I, I, I never worried seriously about my own uh, personal safety. Uh, it's, it's a really beautiful building too. I mean, I've been there since it's been restored, actually given a talk there. And it's, it's really amazing to me to, what was really amazing to stand in that place and, and imagine what that must've been like uh, to walk up to a, you know, smoldering laboratories where work was being done in good work that had much more of a uh, <laughs> um, uh, altruistic feel to it. Uh, and it, so it, it really was very, uh, you know, even a kind of emotional to be there. 
And, uh, you know, so it really was kind of surprising. Yeah, the, the original building, the funding for it came entirely from donors. And so you can imagine that I felt quite guilty about the whole thing. The first director of the center who had raised the money from the private sector to build the building was there in the aftermath of the fire. And I walked right up to him, Harold Tukey, and said, I am so, so sorry. Because I knew before anything had been written about this or published about it, I knew that I had been the target of it. And um, Harold looked at me and he said, this is just a thumb in the eye of the whole city of Seattle. So he was personally offended by the idea that anything that was happening um, justified the kind of attack that the Earth Liberation Front uh, perpetrated. And uh, the University of Washington was very good about rebuilding really a, a even better uh, facility using state appropriated funds rather than going back to the public to ask for all of the money again. But this was a very special um, institution. And obviously you perceive that when you, when you visited. And, and um, I really regret that so much damage was done to the careers of my friends and colleagues um, at the center. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Toby Bradshaw. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. And we're speaking about the events of May 2001 and how they affected progress at the center and ultimately, did they have a long-term effect on plant biology and biotechnology progress? This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. One hundred years ago today, a baby was born in London. That baby would go on to be a great scholar in chemistry and a leading scientist in the field of X-ray crystallography. She would make great contributions at unraveling the structure of viruses and plants, as well as some of the most insidious human pathogens. But she's best known for Photograph 51, a strange pattern of blobs that looks more like a Rorschach that's gone wrong than the detailed key to the structure of DNA. But it was that photo that led others to publish and be recognized for this milestone in chemistry and biology. Now the story of how that photo was obtained by others and used is a critical one for you to know. It's the story of how it was essentially stolen from the scientists that produced it, and it's no secret that much of what was happening was because of misogyny, a contempt for a woman finding success in resolving questions that men in science were working hard to resolve. Dr. Franklin would sadly die at the age of 37 and never know the massive impact of her findings. Now even today, we need to keep working to resolve the inequities in science as they happen. And understanding the history of bias is an important part of creating that change. So learn more about Dr. Franklin and share her story. Listen to the Talking Biotech Podcast number 139. Watch the PBS documentary, The Secret of Photograph 51. These are brilliant accounts of her sad story. So I tip my cap to you, Dr. Franklin, as we remember your great accomplishments. Mourn your loss. 
and remember the unfairness you suffered so that we may ensure that it never may happen again. And now, back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Toby Bradshaw. He's a professor emeritus at the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. And we're talking about the events of May 2001, where the Earth Liberation Front set up a firebomb in an office with the intention of destroying research, or at least curtailing research, or possibly intimidating researchers that were believed to be working on issues in biotechnology. And uh, you mentioned before, you know, what the device was like and what actually happened. Um, What happened to the people from Earth Liberation Front? It took several years for the FBI to track down the perpetrators of the firebombing. And I have to give all credit to their, their persistence and devotion to finding the people who did this. It was not an easy task, but eventually they did find an informant within the group who and put a wire on him and systematically identified all of the people involved in the firebombing at the University of Washington and many of the other actions that were carried out by the Earth Liberation Front. Eventually, all of the people who firebombed my office were found. One of them, Bill Rogers, committed suicide in jail in Arizona. All the rest were convicted and sent to prison for various lengths of time. It took essentially a decade for all of them to be caught and prosecuted and put in prison, but it did happen. And, you know, I've been through remodelings before something as innocuous as just you know changing out some benches and some plumbing or whatever and it's really disruptive it changes how fast your lab can work and you know how how good quality of the research it changes everything how did this affect your research or other research at that center i feel somewhat guilty in saying this but it had very little direct effect on me i was very fortunate uh, to have colleagues across campus at University of Washington, you can imagine that they were all very sympathetic to my plight. One of my very close colleagues was on sabbatical that year, and so he offered me his office and his lab to use while he was on sabbatical, since he would be away from the university. So I was back up and running in less than two weeks with essentially no disruption to my research. My All my computer files were backed up to tape, and I had those restored within a matter of hours, really not even days. And all of the really critical samples that I had, my seeds, my pollen, my DNA, all of that uh, had been in frozen storage, and that was unaffected really by the fire. So the impact to my research was absolutely minimal, and I had to watch on the other hand, my colleagues at the Center for Urban Horticulture are basically living in, you know, un-air-conditioned, unheated Quonset huts with their grad students, you know, trying to reclaim what they could of their research that had been irrevocably damaged by the fire. So I professionally lost essentially uh, nothing, and it's just one of the 
ironies of this attack by the Earth Liberation Front that I was the person least affected by the attack and the other people working much more closely on environmental restoration and improvement were the ones who were the most deeply affected and, and for the longest time. It really took me very little time to move on both professionally and personally, but I know that some of my colleagues were still grieving about this a decade later because of what they had lost. Well, I understood that some rare collections and rare materials, books and things were lost. No, it was just terrible. So there is a library, the Elizabeth Miller Library at the Center for Urban Horticulture, which has some of the oldest published works on botany anywhere at any library in the world. I mean, some of these books are from the 16th century. So how do you replace something like that that's damaged by fire and water and smoke? Uh, it was it was heartbreaking to see that kind of loss. Uh, my friend and colleague Tom Hinckley, who was the director of the center at the time, had an enormous collection of images from veg- succession of vegetation on Mount St. Helens after its eruption. Those were all destroyed. My colleague Sarah Reichard, who was breeding a rare plant for Washington called the showy stick seed, um, she had a collection of those being propagated. They were all destroyed. My friend and colleague, Kern Ewing, who works on restoration ecology in wetlands, had all of his works destroyed. It was really, really tragic. Uh, and as I said, just ironic that, that I was virtually unaffected by all of that. And they were affected for years and years and years afterwards. It's horribly sad to hear that because it just shows you know, that these things have such collateral damage and and you, you they harm so many good people with good research and you know you know as well as I do universities aren't necessarily really quick to uh you know find ways to correct this and and it and our profession you know doesn't say well give them a break because they had the setback you know life goes on in the rest of the world and you know it, how did this affect your um interest and your resolve in getting back and doing good research? I really didn't change the direction or focus of my research at all. I changed locations for uh, a year or so um, while my friend was on sabbatical, but I continued to work um, on the same types of uh, questions, both in trees and in non-tree plant species. Um, I work on herbaceous plants as well, the same General questions of the genetic basis of adaptation apply across all plants. Um, So my work continued um, unabated. I won't say that it changed my resolve. I never really felt the compelled or had no wish to change the direction of my research. I wasn't the least bit intimidated by the Earth Liberation Front, primarily because it had had um, no effect on me, and I felt like it was such a misguided attack that it didn't really um, cause me to rethink what I was doing um, in the least bit. So it did, however, change my resolve to communicate with the public more about plant biotechnology. And subsequent to the firebombing, I have given, oh, I don't know, um, dozens if not hundreds of public uh, presentations at in every kind of venue that you can imagine because you do the same kind of thing. Uh, and I, I always came away from those events 
feeling like I had tried to take the educational mission of the university outside of its own walls. It, it, it definitely, there's, there's something about uh, being attacked, having your research attacked and burned that does uh, cause you to reflect on, on what the real mission of a university is and, and, and to resolve to take action to improve public understanding of the science. Because I feel like if there had been an adequate understanding of what I was doing as opposed to what they thought I was doing, none of this ever would have happened. And I wanted to be sure that everyone that I could reach um, understood exactly what I was doing, understood the difference between genetic engineering and cross-pollination, understood the difference between um, plant domestication and um, wild plant conservation. I mean, all of the things that plant biologists take for granted um, as being general knowledge, they're not general knowledge. And I tried to, I tried to redress that imbalance. That's really an interesting point because it seems like the University of Washington Center for Urban Horticulture is probably a, a target that would be completely consistent with their values and something that Earth Liberation Front would probably support because of the emphasis on local ecology and restoration ecology. And in, in a, it, there's so many ironies uh, in this. Were, were there any other really deep, ironic notes to this entire attack? I will say that the environmental community, even I would say the environmental activist community, in and around Seattle immediately recognized the horrific nature of this attack and, and disavowed any allegiance to the kind of motives that the Earth Liberation Front had. And they made all the same points that you just made, that the work going on at the Center for Urban Horticulture was perfectly aligned with environmental justice, with environmental restoration, and that it should have been the absolute last target on the Earth Liberation Front list. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't feel at all like uh, there was an us versus them. Uh, the environmental community stood with the academic community, stood with, with um, the, the supporters of research, whether they were um, government agencies or private companies. Everybody was on the same side of this except the Earth Liberation Front. And I believe that this really gave the Earth Liberation Front, a black eye in the environmental community. And I think it's in large part why the Earth Liberation Front um, has uh, sunk below the surface, although I think there are other reasons as well. Well, do you think that it has anything to do with 9-11? <laughs> and you know, well, I think the reason I mention that is because the, the way that we deal with domestic terrorism and, uh, you know, and the policies towards domestic terrorism really changed a lot after 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all that stuff. And do you think that that, that has become a deterrent or why haven't we seen more of this style of attack? Oh, I'm not laughing because I think you're wrong. I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the timing of this attack by the Earth Liberation Front could hardly have been any worse, right? So, you know, May the 21st, the Center for Urban Horticulture is burned. September the 11th of the same year, the World Trade Center towers come down and Congress gets on board with strong anti-terrorism legislation. And absolutely, I believe if you ask the FBI, they would tell you that really what enabled them to pursue this case was the resources that were made available after 9-11 to prosecute domestic terrorists. 
And um, these, these destructive device charges and anti-terrorism charges absolutely, I think, put the fear into people who might have been contemplating so-called uh, direct action. And I think when they saw what happened to those people who were pursued and prosecuted successfully and put in prison, um, you know, that, that should make most people think twice. I'll also say that I don't think the Earth Liberation Front has ever been a big organization. I don't think it's ever been more than a few dozen people. It just shows you how much havoc can be wreaked by a few people who are bent on intimidation and destruction, and that is the fundamental nature of terrorism, right? It's meant to change behavior of the large number of people in the population uh, by intimidation, by violence, even though the people who are perpetrating the violence are themselves a, a small number and not representative at all of the rest of the population. That's why terrorism can be successful because a small number of people can have a disproportionate impact. So you have to resist the belief that a small number of terrorists represents a much larger segment of the population. I simply don't believe that. So I think when the, when the FBI extinguished this uh, relatively small group of people who were carrying out these acts that effectively ended the Earth Liberation Front as a domestic uh, terrorism organization. Yeah, I once wrote a foreword to the book, um, The Fear Babe, where um, I referred to this kind of terrorism, food terrorism, or, you know, to food and food technology terrorism as Al-Qaeda. <laughs> um, and that the, it, it, because they basically were using all of the tactics of intimidation around creating some sort of cultural change or creating some sort of a change or political change. And, uh, and I really believe that, you know, these kinds of things were the seeds of, of really an anti-biotech movement. But after 9-11 and after this one went down so harshly, do you think that they, you know, and I, and I can say that, let me just tell you what I think. I think they switched from this kind of intimidation to using electronic intimidation and using online resources and career assassination is the way to get through uh, to do this because there's no penalty for that. Yeah, I think I think that um, the Center for Urban Horticulture firebombing was such a misguided effort that it led the Earth Liberation Front and like-minded people to think of alternatives um, that didn't have so much collateral damage to non-targets. And, and um, I don't dispute for a minute that um, intimidation, sort of online intimidation, um, is, is, the new, is the new kind of way to influence the direction that people's research takes. Uh, I would do my best uh, to resist that if I could, because I just don't think it ever pays to let terrorists win. And I said as much in an editorial at the time of the firebomb. I mean, the last thing, and I would believe me, I was encouraged um, to change the direction of my research because the university, not by high university officials, but by um, some people in the university, some of my uh, colleagues who believed that the existence of my research posed a threat to the university itself. And I reject that notion. I mean, I think a university is all about uh, discovery, about pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And I don't think there's anything 
um, that's off limits as long as it's ethical. And I totally believe that everything I was doing was um, completely ethical, certainly totally legal. So I have uh, very strong feelings that intimidation tactics should never be allowed to work or it just encourages the intimidators. I, I, I agree a thousand percent. Um, I think that when it gets to be the worst and some of the things I've went through, um, they, they, they said, you know, you have to decide how you're going to come out the other side and don't give this to them. And, you know, no matter how much it hurts, keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, you mentioned in the LA times and it ties in with this, that these are actually that you feel that these were actually hate crimes. And do you feel that's still kind of an appropriate label for this kind of action? I do. A, a hate crime is a crime that's targeted at someone for who they are rather than what they've done. And that's exactly why I was targeted. I was targeted because I was a scientist working on the genetics of trees, not for anything that I had done. I mean, the, the accusation that I had genetically engineered tr trees was not only false, even if it were true. So what? There's, there's nothing... Um, immoral, illegal, unethical about genetically engineering trees. Um, the trees that I had that were genetically engineered in my collaboration with Steve Strauss, those are contained in a greenhouse according to uh, all applicable plant biosafety regulations. There was, there was no danger of those things escaping um, into nature. Um, and uh, I, I have no regrets about doing any of the research that I did. I, I, I'm completely unapologetic about what I was doing for my research, and I won't be intimidated into stopping what I was doing simply because someone else is uncomfortable with it because they don't understand it. If they understood what I understood about it, I feel like there would have been essentially um, no opposition. And um, ignorance is by far the greatest enemy of science. We see it every day across the political spectrum, you know, anti-vaxxers, climate change deniers, um, anti-evolutionists. I mean, the, the, the battle against um, science, this ideological battle against science is one of the most disturbing features of modern times and the ability for people to get the anti-science message out to a wide uh, audience is unprecedented because of the availability of electronic communications. It's, it's the thing that we should all be working against um, as scientists and people who appreciate science. I don't know what I could say to follow up on that. Um, that just is uh, exactly my sentiments. Uh, people have unprecedented ability to access bad information <laughs> and, and lots of people willing to give it. Um, so uh, Dr. Toby Bradshaw, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. It's a wonderful uh, interview, but um, a story that I think all of us need to remember. Uh, it's a great uh, chapter in the war against anti-science and the war against bad information. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Write a review anywhere where you consume podcast media. Um, help the folks who are looking for assistance. Uh, Sugar Rush Films, uh, Dr. Alan McEwen's new book. Look at some of these opportunities to support these ventures of people who are doing good work in communicating what's happening in biology and biotechnology. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast. 
presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.